All right, Rob Goldstone, welcome to the Muller Time Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Rob, I just want to thank you. I know uh, I finished your book yesterday, and uh, it's <laughs> how would you describe the, uh, the last two or three years of your life, Rob? Um, they've been interesting, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> They've been a kind of uh, roller coaster that, you know, it's funny having been a, a been a publicist. It's um, you always try to put your clients out there in the media. That's what you dedicate most of your life to. Right. And so for me to be the story is so shocking in many ways. Um, also, because I know the reality, you know, stories are great. I used to be a journalist and journalists are very good at hyping stories the same way as I hyped an email. But the reality is when you get down to the nitty gritty, often it is still a story, but it's not quite as dramatic as maybe people had hoped. So my life has been, the only way I can describe it is, is an unbelievable roller coaster. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, let's just say hypothetically, uh, for the hypothetical listener who has been in a cave the last four years, could you tell people just briefly who you are and why, uh, how you sort of got involved in the the Trump Tower story? Sure. Um, you know, I, well, up until <laughs> up until the, the, the story of what's, what's commonly, I suppose, called Russiagate broke uh, in 2017, um, you know, I was a publicist, a music manager, and a former journalist. Uh, one of my clients, uh, who I managed, is Emin Aguilarov, who is known now because he's the person who asked for the meeting with the Trumps, the famous meeting at Trump Tower. In order to start that process, I am the person who sent that now even more famous or infamous email to Donald Trump Jr. Um, and, you know, following on from my email, he and my client spoke and a meeting took place and I happened to end up in the meeting. And so for the last couple of years, a lot of people, especially in the media, have focused on that email and what I said in it and that meeting and what transpired as some evidence of perhaps there being collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Mm. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I read your book, by the way, I just want to say uh, as someone, you know, being the host of Mueller time, I've read every, probably every book <laughs> on, uh, associated with this, the, the Mueller investigations. I do want to congratulate you. I just want to say, um, it was my favorite book. The reason is, uh, First of all, it wasn't that long, which is... It wasn't that long, right? I don't know whether that's because I ran out of things to say or just because, <laughs> I don't know, but it isn't that long. That's what most people said. Thank God it's not so long. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, there's other books that are more important in terms of the, in, like, the overall of picture course. of what happened, but it was, uh, it was also entertaining. So thank you. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so it, it was interesting. So I went back and I looked at I was just kind of reflecting on when I was reading your book on my own, my own reflections when this whole thing started. And I was, you know, like you said, it's nuance is important in life. And I, like most of the public, I was and, and frankly am outraged about the Russian intervention and the things right. that happened. But I went back and looked at when the story broke, um, my, one of my own personal Facebook posts, which was when you checked into Trump Tower that day. Right. <laughs> Could you uh, just kind of go elaborate on that? Well, it's funny because, um, you know, I was asked this at one of the three or four um, congressional or Capitol Hill type of uh, of inquiries that I gave voluntary evidence to. You know, I think somebody said to me, I don't think I know, somebody said to me, were you trying to keep this meeting 
private. And before I could answer, another of those people said, well, you did actually check in on Facebook. <laughs> probably no, right? <laughs> and the reality was that I paid so little attention to this meeting, its relevance and its importance to me, let alone to anybody else. That I checked in, you know, I checked in for one reason, and I, and I say it in my book, and, I, and I've said it throughout. When I first met Donald Trump, and I've met him a total of probably five times in total, I would tell people, my friends, and, and a lot of my friends are diehard liberal Democrats who despise everything about Donald Trump even before he ran for president. So it used to amuse me that I would say, oh, I'm walking past Trump Tower, or, oh, look, I'm doing something with Donald Trump, or I met Donald Trump, or here's a video with Donald Trump. I would post it, and they would go ballistic on my Facebook, and how could you even use his name? How could you this? So it was another example of me of, oh, this time I'm actually in Trump Tower at a meeting. Of course I would check in, but it was to <laughs> rile up all my friends. It had nothing to do with anything else. But I never for one second thought that meeting should be private. There was nothing about it where I, I thought maybe I shouldn't check in. So, yeah, I checked in as normal. <laughs> yeah, when I saw that, I looked back at my post and they, you know, this whole story was breaking. They had a photo of you and I was just, like most of the public, I was outraged. I said, "You, this is you got to be kidding me. So it was interesting. I, this isn't really a, a thought about the investigation. It's more my own kind of commentary on just, I guess on life a little bit, how uh, it's important to uh, sometimes see the big picture and hear everybody out even because as it turns out, it wasn't even context. Yeah. yeah. And I have to say context. A lot of people say to me, why did you write a book? And I wrote a book for one reason, as you know, because you've read it. It doesn't yeah. pander to either side. No. I'm not political. I don't really have a political bone in my body. I don't care about politics. It doesn't pander to the left. It doesn't pander to the right. It was designed for one thing, and that was to give context mm. to the full story of how I, me, found themselves. <laughs> you know, I've said from the beginning, the very core of what's being investigated, you know, a foreign entity, this time be it Russia, interfering in, in America's elections, is hugely important. That's why this inquiry and Mueller and all that, I wonder mm. which hunt, it was a legitimate exercise. Sure. But what I've tried to point out is... I believe it's a huge jigsaw puzzle. There's mm. lots of pieces, and some of them will fit, and some of them don't fit. And all I've tried to say is look at the big picture. And even now, I go on Twitter, which I know I probably should do, I go <laughs> and I read people's comments, and there are still people who supposedly are quite bright and intelligent who say, well, Mueller must have missed it. Mueller mustn't have realized what you meant in your email. Mueller must have got... They, they can't really believe. I, I don't believe that people could actually believe it after two years and 60 investigators and whatever it is, mm. that people believe that them anonymously, or in some cases not, sitting in their bedroom on an anonymous you know, outlet like Twitter mm. could actually have this reasoning, which they then go through, which if they only spent five minutes and read some of the public testimony or any of this stuff and just looked at the context. I know it's not necessarily the answer they want, but sometimes we don't get the answer we want. And nobody's saying that Russia didn't interfere in any. That's already been proven as far as I can see. I'm just saying, look at the context of all of this. And just because something looks right doesn't mean it has to always be correct. Yeah. And um, I just, you know, I guess for my listeners, I, I would just want to be clear that I um, haven't 
finally finished the report after um, quite a while. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, largely the my, my own personal opinion is that um, yes, Trump. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, there are over a hundred examples of collusion in there and conspiracy, right. whatever you want to use. I absolutely think that basically the big picture, it, it is what it looks like. But I do think that uh, I don't know if you were talking about you specifically. I think your picture is not what I thought it was. Uh, and many people have said that. Not everyone. Yeah. As I say, some people go with this. Oh, you're all being brainwashed. You're being hoodwinked. You're being mm. whatever. But the reality is, I, you know, I have to say, you brought up one example where I checked in. But I bring up another one. I may not be political, but I'm not stupid. So do people really believe that if I had really known what I was talking about, I wouldn't have just sent an email that said, hey, Don, can you call me? I have something to tell you. Would I have written all of that that way if it really was what people tried to believe it was? It was a puffed up bit of PR based on, it wasn't made up, it was based on some very scant information, but it was quite specific, from my client, who I believe also had no idea what he was talking about, because he's someone that lives in a bubble, doesn't pay a lot of attention, and probably didn't pay that much Hmm. attention to whatever his father told him, which I have no idea what that was. But I do know what it was when I came to write it. And so I just think that, just think about it, would I have put all that down in perpetuity because we live in a world where everything comes out eventually everything so it would have been easy to just say hey Don could you please call me about something or anything I wouldn't have written all of that I do know myself well enough to know that I would have been a little bit smarter and I wouldn't have checked in for this meeting so yeah <laughs> yeah by the way Rob I noticed uh, the the original title of your book was the useful idiot am I correct correct yeah <laughs> i still love that title but and, and and let me tell you i've no one's asked me why and you haven't but i'll say i'll pretend you did yeah. ask me why i changed it and i changed it because after after uh giving evidence to i think it was three congressional one senator a Mueller inquiry and a grand jury my attorney actually said to me on the train the way back he goes i just want to tell you something are you sure you want to call this book useful idiot because i don't believe that you're perceived in that way by the people that are hearing this and understand it. And maybe people will look at it and think you're calling yourself an actual idiot. Oh, that's funny. They did this food for thought. I liked it because at first I didn't understand it. And I was called it by um, Christopher Hill, who was a former ambassador, I think, to Iraq Mm -hmm. or UN or somewhere or both. And um, when I read it, it made some sense because it was, you know, historically it's people who've been used, uh, by the Russians or by the Secret Service as a, as a patsy type of thing. And I thought it would leave a, a bit of an interesting title there. But mm. then I thought, you know what, he has a point. You know, it's not, I had a reason for doing what I did. It's just not the reason people say. So it, I changed it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, um, I do want to talk about the email because the, so when I read that email, uh, like a lot of people, and even up until I read your book, I was like, this is, this it was a setup and, Again, I just want to be clear to my listeners, I believe the big picture, it was a setup. But what, what was interesting about your book uh, and the language you used before I read the book, you know, Crown Prosecutor, this and that, I was like, oh my God, it's just, it's just to set these people up the minute they respond. But what you made clear in the book was that basically you, you had to sell this because that's your job. And if you don't sell things, you had one client, correct? 
I had Emin as a client. I'd managed him and done his PR for three years. That was my only client. I got rid of all my clients because mm. he was a 24-7 operation. And it's worth saying that he's a music guy that likes to play video games right. and scare people and jump up and down. He, you know, I think we have to put that in context. I'm not right. working for somebody who has any political bent as far as mm. I know. So, yes, is the answer. It's my only client. Right. So you basically went about selling this, um, which... You know, I sort of thought, I was like, there's no way. And then I, I kind of thought about that. And being in the entertainment industry, I actually I actually believe that. Like, I, you know, basically, you know, the client, you're in a client-based business. If he says to do something, no matter how friendly you are. You jump. Yeah, it's basically. smoke and mirrors. You know, I work in entertainment. I've represented entertainment acts where the record label said to me, they're the biggest something in the world and you go well they're not and they go but you could it sort of is and by the time you get to pitch it they are and maybe it was just for that week and maybe it was just in germany but you know what by the time you come to speak with these people you can explain it all but i have to tell you that a, a, a tv presenter who shall remain nameless before mm. we did an interview um after my book said to me I need two seconds of your time. He goes, I would have written that email exactly the same way. And if you ever want to see the emails we send to book people on our station, you'll be horrified. And I smiled because I have seen that. I've been booked on shows where they've gone, oh, we feel so bad about how you've been treated. I go on and it's like the Spanish Inquisition. It's nothing like they pitched me on. But I understand that. That's the world in which I live. I'm a publicist. We do pitches that are a bit over the top and we get pitched things that are sort of what they should be, but are not. So it didn't faze me in that respect. I understand that what, what you'll have read in my book, mm. I believe on something like this, which, which is quite obscure and bizarre, because I'm not asking something for my client or even for his father. I'm asking for some obscure attorney at this point that I know very little about, except a few key facts. I believe you get one shot at making that request. Mm to a campaign that's in the middle of, you could argue, they're almost out of their depth, in my opinion, of what they're even doing, and it's the busiest time. I can't pitch and say, well, Emin sort of says this, and I think it's that, but I don't know it's that, because mm. if I pitched you like that, you wouldn't even answer. And so I only get one shot, and I have a client who wasn't used to hearing the word no. He liked what he liked, and he, was, he had the resource to sort of get whatever he wanted in the entertainment world and in his own business world. And I've made some pretty remarkable things happen for him. And we performed in amazing places. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make him happy. That's what you do if you're a publicist with your client. I could have said no. And do I regret it? Of course I regret it because of what it all led to. But did I? Yes. I pushed him back a bit and said, why are we doing this? Like no good could come of this. And not because of what people think. The reason I said it was, I was being protective of our relationship with Trump. I knew that if Trump ever got elected, which at the time, I've said it before, Donald Duck had more chance than Donald Trump of being the president. <laughs> but if he ever got elected, I know what my client was like. He would have said, can we shoot a video in the Rose Garden? Right. Can I shoot a photo shoot? I wanted that favor up my sleeve. And that's why I said, this is a waste of time. No good could come of it. It wasn't because I thought it was illegal or it shouldn't be done. Mm. That never even crossed my mind. That's very, you know, um, I, I got to say that's it's interesting because I, I, I sort of, uh, there's a little, there's dual ideas competing in my head that I'm having trouble with. You're clearly a highly intelligent person, but 
on the other hand, it, it's clearly to take a meaning like that is, um, uh, how do you reconcile that? I, cause I mean, would you believe you if, if, if you were just, no, diff- I understand. No, no, no. I, that's a great question. Actually. I understand why people are so skeptical of it. Mm. And I understand on top of everything else that we currently, and for the last couple of years live, unfortunately in an atmosphere where there is no gray, everything appears to be very black and white to some extent. Um, it's very divisive. It's a little bit angry as a society. And I think that's all to do with it's led from the top. There's no question of that. And so it's it's kind of like if I looked at this, sure, I would have questions about he must have known. How could he not know it was wrong? But this is this is the only way I can answer that. First of all, I didn't. Secondly, I didn't even give that a second thought. And thirdly, people say all the time, How can you, Rob Goldstone, entertainment publisher from England, publisher, not have known it was wrong? And my answer is, how could the chairman of the Trump campaign who was in there not have stopped it or not have said you can't do this or even during the meeting well rob he is in jail right now to be fair (laughs) i understand the second part of that usually goes i'm not trying to throw him under a bus but (laughs) throw himself under his own bus but i'm just saying he never like he attended the meeting so it never gave me any thought that this was wrong because otherwise i do have to say and, and my job isn't to defend anyone including myself to some extent yeah do I think Don Jr. knew it was wrong? Do I think? No, I think he was dumb. I think he was hmm. too stupid to know it was wrong. I think that's what the Mueller report basically said, which was we maybe could have brought some charges, but first of all, the meeting did turn out to be nothing. And secondly, he was maybe, and I'm not using their words now, a bit too ignorant, naive, stupid, use whatever word you want, to know it was wrong. I get that because I had no idea. No hmm. idea whatsoever. So yes, I take the blame that it was naive, stupid i maybe overly hyped that email but you have to also remember this was a private email to a private citizen Mm. i wasn't writing this to the son of the president of the united states Mm. i might have spent more than the two or three minutes you know banging out this this missive if that had been a case and and you know we all spend things or say things or do things that we regret the difference is mine has been examined by the world and has now been stated as the world's most famous email. It's so <laughs> shocking to me that I actually had to just gulp while I was <laughs> Yeah, and uh, no, I mean, look, I give you credit for, uh, uh, look, uh, first of all, very few people know what it's like to be famous of any kind. And then on top of that, maybe infamous. Uh, and, uh, you know, I give anybody credit for facing the fire in life. And that's, uh, you know, that's what you're doing. Uh, well, I have to say one thing. So when this first broke, um, I said to Emin, like, what do I do? This is going to be awful. This is the end of everything. And he said, this relates to what you just said about people being famous. And he wrote back to me, and I submitted this to all the committees, this, this uh, backwards and forwards. And he said to me, um, I said, this is going to have a devastating effect, both on me and my business. And he goes, or oh, maybe it'll make you really famous, like you'll be the most famous person in America. And I said, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer was really famous. It didn't do him a lot of good. You're an idiot. And that was the end of that <laughs> conversation. And I've always been someone, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in which I started out by saying this. I've always believed it's not true when people say all publicity is good publicity. I've never adhered to yeah. that fact. And, you know, to be famous is one thing. I've never wanted to be famous. But to be infamous, 
just from personal experience, is not something anybody could actually yeah. imagine until it happens to them. I have people screaming abuse at me in the street. I had someone try and attack me in a car. I've had people, and I am, I try and write it off by saying, I understand their anger and frustration is really directed at the president and his decisions and his policies. And I'm the closest thing for some reason they think, you know, they can vent their anger. But you try having that happen to you day in, day out. It isn't pleasant. I have trouble just interacting with normal people on a day in, day out basis. So (laughs) I can't really. I I did want to go back to, so I just, I just want to make sure I get it right. Are, Are you basically saying that you're so apolitical that the idea of taking a, a meeting with a hostile foreign power during an election was just, it never occurred to you? Is that what, that it what was I'm really saying is that I never interpreted what I was saying mm-hmm. as that, what you've just summed up mm-hmm. quite well. I actually took it as, look, she's connected. So Emin had said to me a couple of times, she's connected. And, you know, I flippantly remarked, as it says in my book, connected to what? The power growth? because he wasn't telling me what. And then there was a silence. Well, again, I'm not stupid. So mm. what, is a, what is a prosecutor connected to? The government in some way. So it's a government attorney. So I looked at it as it's a government attorney that's got some information or give it. And the reason I went to Don Jr. Mm. And, and I made this very clear was I could have sent it not to Trump directly. I didn't have that relationship, but to his office, to his secretary, to whatever. But I went down the food chain and I thought I'd gone to the lowest possible level. Someone who really you didn't hear a lot about. This wasn't Jared Nivanta. This was Don Jr. The reason I I sent it to him as opposed to any of these other people was that if it was nonsense, rubbish or whatever, it didn't matter. It was about the embarrassment factor that I was concerned about. I really... Hand on heart, whether it's because, as I say, I'll take the bullet for being dumb or ignorant or naive. It never struck me mm. that this woman was actually representing a foreign power, and that's the information. It was more like Emma's dad met someone who's connected with the government and mm. did this, and she has this information. It was that I didn't care about the information. I didn't believe she mm. really had this. And I didn't care if she did, she didn't. I cared about shutting up my client, if I'm saying it really crap. Yeah. I wanted to hear nothing more about this. And, you know, he made it very clear. You don't have to go. You don't have to attend. You don't have to do anything. Just get the meeting. And again, it, this is the most important thing I want to say on this. Mm. People think my email got the meeting. My email makes it very clear to Dom. It says maybe the best thing or perhaps the best thing is you just speak with Emin about it directly. When he answered in that immortal phrase, First of all, when he goes, if it's what you say it is, I love it. I interpreted that different to how people now say that phrase. I was like, oh, thank God. He's saying, if it's what you say it is, I love it. There's a question mark over it. Maybe he understands. I don't really know what the hell I'm talking about. Mm. And then he goes, perhaps you're right. I just speak with them indirectly. As everyone now knows, I set up that call. Nobody knows what they really said because neither of them have testified about it. And whatever happened on that call, the next stage was I get an email saying from Emin set it up and from Don saying Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner will now attend that meeting. And I thought, oh, well, that must have been an interesting call. And that was it. I never had to go to. But I just want to make that clear. Don didn't take a meeting because I asked him for one. He didn't care about me. I'm a publicist. (laughs) He took a meeting because I set up my client to speak with him. 
and the puffing of the email got that call. Yeah, the, the I, I, I yes, I totally agree with you. The and that's that's one thing that personally has really it's bugged me, especially about about the Trump family. Is there's always right. everything's always sort of somebody else's fault, and that's not how life is. We're all responsible for our own actions. Um, so I, I actually right that's that would be ridiculous to put that on you. Uh, I, I also found something interesting in your book that when I read the email, I said this is a setup. Look at this ridiculous language. And what you pointed out, like crown prosecutor, is that that's actually a common. And, yeah. But didn't you also say that's a term where you're from? Or, um, in, yeah, in, so, absolutely. Yeah. So two things. First of all, Russia hasn't had a crown prosecutor since they got rid of the crown, I mm. discovered, when they murdered their royal family in, in 1918. Oh. But more importantly, I'm from England. I grew up in England. I studied journalism. As part of it, you study a little bit of what they call public administration and law. All prosecutors in the UK are crown prosecutors. They represent the crown, the queen of England, the crown. I still call what you would call federal prosecutors here, crown prosecutors. When Emin told me that this attorney, and I didn't know it was a woman at this stage, I may add, was either a current or former prosecutor who was well-connected, I called what we now know to be a her as a crown prosecutor. What I do have to say is when the media went insane over this phrase, when the story (laughs) broke, I did tell both the Associated Press and the New York Times the day that story broke, the reason why I use Crown Prosecutor, the fact that people choose to ignore all of that, in my mind, as an ex-journalist, is it's a better story to keep that going, that he meant this person, he meant that person. If I'd meant that, I would have said that. There's obviously a very specific phrase for these other people. I meant an English term for a federal prosecutor. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, I have... I have kind of, this is like what I would call a moral question. Um, I read your book and you talk about, you're Jewish and, and so am I, and you talk about the vile anti-Semitism that you experienced as a kid. It made me sick actually just reading it. Um, by the time the Trump campaign was in effect, they were participating in this vile type of nonsense that we're still going through. Did, did any of that bother you associating with these people? So, interestingly enough, it didn't bother me. Let's go pre all of this. Um, again, people said to me, why have you not blasted them and said awful things about them? I have to say, I met Don Jr. twice in total. I met Donald Trump five times. Mm-hmm. They're not my friends. They're not the, I'm not a family friend. I'm not all of the things I've been called. But they'd always been very professional, very nice, very kind, very whatever. So I've never seen a side to either of those people that would make me think that. The anti-Semitic side, I... I would go even less because once Jared Kushner came into the Mm. clan, you would assume he brings the opposite of that to some extent. Mm. I'd rather answer it this way and say that I don't believe, and these are my own personal, I don't believe much of what comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. Mm. But what I also don't believe is that he believed a lot of this stuff. Because if the Donald Trump that over the years I've seen roasted on Comedy Central, I do the (laughs) Friars roast, and I've I've seen on red carpets, it's just... It's, it's sort of obvious to me he's pandering to his base. He's saying this nonsense, but this nonsense is really dangerous. That's the issue. So you can play this as a game when you're not in control of the country and when people don't react to your every word the way they do now. Mm. It's entered a new phase. So, yes, when I see all of that, the racism, the, you know, I'm a gay Jew. So, therefore, there's <laughs> lots of stuff. And, and, you know, when you uh. read the Internet... I have to say, I, I, I was asked again during one of these hearings, 
if I'd been attacked, you know, if I felt attacked, if I felt whatever, and I said, you know what's funny, though? The only people that have attacked me online have been gays and Jews. Really? And it is interesting. Now, if you think about yeah. it, though, people have said to me since, well, that is who would attack you in reality, because that's probably a lot of the base of the side that hate you because they think you help Trump. And I get that. But, you know, this sounds really flippant, but no heterosexual white male has actually attacked me. Isn't that funny? That's a really bizarre thing to say. But is is that? I mean, that's. Are you are you serious? Has that been your experience? I you am mo- serious. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Including people I assumed were friends of mine hmm. who fit that description as well, and including people who have said such hateful and vile things that in one case I threatened to turn their comments over to the Department of Justice, to the FBI, because it verged on being a real threat. And again, I tried to reconcile it by saying their anger, although directed at me, the underlying anger is at the President of the United States and his policies. And I understand that people sometimes need to vent that. And if I, in some respects, they feel is connected, but I have the same reaction. You know, people come up to me in the street and go, a woman came up to me not long ago and said, I pray for you every Sunday because Donald Trump's in the White House. And I said, and how does that affect me? What's that got to do with me? I say the same thing because, you know, again, to people be surprised, I'm not a Trumper. I don't support Donald Trump. And right. It's like I just happen to have found myself in this. And if you imagine going through this, not only finding yourself in this, but who the person people think that you helped get elected is diametrically opposed to everything you believe. It's even more bizarre. Well, you know, I'm a heterosexual white male, so I'll tell you what, I'll ask you some tough questions <laughs> right. and we'll start. <laughs> hey, <laughs> At least you'll help uh, the balance. Well, you know, I think I was talking to our, uh, I think you and I have a mutual uh, journalist friend and I was, you know, I, anyway, in general, I'm, I'm always, I'm fair with people. I, you know, it's never... Look, you asked the question. You were a journalist. You asked the questions. You asked hard questions. Yeah. That's what it's about. But, um, but, but, but I, I, again, I, I stole a phrase from, I think it was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who said, everyone's entitled to their own opinions. They're not entitled to their own facts. Yeah. And that's what I try to point out to people when they say, you did this, you are this, you, blah, blah, blah. you know, have your opinions, ask questions, and, you know, that's fine. Rob, can you recount the meeting as you've done a million times just for the purpose of this show uh, as best you can? Yeah. So the meeting itself um, took place in Trump Tower. I was there for one purpose, which was to greet Ike Cavaladze, who was the representative of my client, the Aguilaris, who I knew, and his, what I now call his troop of married men, which originally was just him and attorney. But that day... The attorney had emailed and said, I'm bringing a colleague and a translator and all this. And I took so little notice of that that I didn't tell Donald Trump Jr. this. So when I walked in with this group, the first thing I thought was, who the hell are all these people? Then it dawned on me I hadn't told him. So I said to me, look, you've met Don Jr. before. Do you mind coming up with us and just introducing us for the handoff? I didn't see a problem with that. And I thought it'd be a good way to say to Don, Oops, I forgot to tell you there's a couple of other people coming. I went up, introduced, and then I said goodbye. And Don Jr. looked at me and said, why don't you just stay so you can... And he did a gesture I can't do because you can't see me, but it was uh-huh. like to get, to get them out at the end. And the get them out implied to me that it was like, it's going to be a really short meeting and I don't want them to stick around. Fine, again. 
why wouldn't I? I'm representing my client on some level. So I find myself there. I sit next to Jared Kushner. So at one side of the table of this huge, the biggest conference table I've ever seen in my life is myself and Jared Kushner. Opposite is the, the attorney that we now know to be Natalia Veselnitskaya, a translator who I name I can still never remember, a mm. colleague that she brought with her, Ike Cavaladze, who reps the Aguilaros, my mm. client. And then at the head of the table was Paul Manafort and Don Jr. And um, what happened is Don welcomed everybody and then asked what she had to say. What was this information she wanted to present? And it's worth saying that I paid so little attention that I have no idea what language she spoke, meaning I know obviously she speaks Russian. I don't know if she spoke English at the meeting. I know she speaks a bit of English. But it was either through a translator or direct. She started speaking... And she talked about how it was outrageous that people like the Ziff brothers and Bill Browder were making donations to the Democrats and their candidate, who was Hillary Clinton, and yet were not paying tax on this money. There was taxes owed. I don't know if it was in Russia or America. And this, it was a very generic thing, though. And I thought, okay, maybe this is it. You know, I was looking for a smoking gun, waiting to see people literally jump out of their chairs and go, wow. Nothing happened. And then she carried on for a minute or so. And Jared Kushner looked so agitated next to mm. me. I was watching him. And I'd never met him before. I'd never seen him before. And he looked really, really agitated. And then he stopped her in her tracks and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. He said, could you possibly focus and just tell us and come to a point? And to the horror of me, certainly, and I'm sure him, whether it was a translation issue, she began again from this monotonous, rambling pitch that she kind of had from the same point. So at that point, I saw him sort of texting furiously, and we would later learn through his testimony and things. He was saying to his assistant, get me out of this meeting. And Don Jr. kind of raised himself as if to stop this, and she suddenly said, but what I really want to talk about is the issue of adoption. Hmm. And that made my ears prick up. I was like, adoption. And she started talking about Magnitsky something. Now, I'd never heard of Magnitsky or a Magnitsky act. None of this made any sense to me. But she rambled on a bit about how, you know, the sanctions that were in place that were preventing Americans from the adoption of Russian. She hadn't got much further when Don Jr. stood up and said, I have to just stop you. My father's a private citizen. He's not in power. Why don't you address this to the Obama administration? Because maybe they can do something about it. And before she could answer, he said, anyway, time is tight. I want to thank you all for coming. Mm. And I interjected and said, thank you very much. All mm -hmm. of you. you know, so I just slapped the table. I did the same. Then I, Cavalazze, a text just said, why are we talking about adoption? We have to stop this meeting. And said, thank you all. Goodbye. And like, got them out. I hung back and I went up to Don and said, I just, have to apologize i'm so embarrassed and he looked at me and he said i have just no idea what that was about but i do lots of meetings whatever thank you very much regards to em and goodbye and we walked out i went downstairs called Emin in the middle of the night in moscow he said how was the meeting i said you've asked me to do many many embarrassing and ridiculous things since i've worked for you this without question was the most embarrassing we just had a meeting about adoption and he said to me, what have adoptions got to do with it? 
And I said, hmm. I have no idea. Why don't you speak to Ike? And I never want to talk about this again. I said, but I guarantee you will never hear from the Trumps again. You'll never be able to ask them anything. It's exactly what I feared would happen. And I hung up and we never spoke about it ever again. Did Donald Trump know about the meeting, do you think? No. I don't know. I was hoping, to be honest, that the Mueller report would answer that very question. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. This is how I have answered it in the past, and, I, and I'll answer it to you the same way. If my father was running for president and I was having a meeting with a bunch of Russians and some other people in his conference room, a few floors down from where apparently he was, I would tell my father. Yeah. That's the only way I can answer it. I, human nature would say to me, I would say, oh, I'm going down now to meet with a group of Russians who apparently have information about him. I would, but that's just what I would say. Do I know? I've no idea. That's very interesting. What about, uh, what about Emin? I mean, it's just, I, I keep going back to the, the fact in this whole, whatever the last two years have been, that everyone, everybody, it's like everyone has a reason why they aren't a part of this. And I mean, I think you've done a pretty good job of in your book of explaining some of the, the story. But when one steps right. back and looks from it, looks at it, it it really is what it looks like. Yet nobody had anything to do with it. I mean, what I guess. So it what, looks ridiculous. Yeah. I get it. It, it yeah. looks like everybody can't have just been an innocent party in this. I get it. It does look. Yeah. Like it. And I don't know the answer to that because yeah. obviously. Again, I'm sure you will understand, your listeners will understand, once the story breaks and you end up having to get lawyers and do stuff, one of the things that, that people like me in these situations are advised is, you know, for the, at least for the future, you need to not talk to anybody involved in this. And so, you do, so I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. I've never sat with Emmett. I've never seen Emmett for years or whatever. And I've never been able to say, hey, you know what, let's have a cup of tea. Tell me everything. I haven't had that <laughs> yeah. conversation. No, but not... I know him very well. I worked mm. with him very That would be an interesting cup of tea, I think, is what you did say. But, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I know the players involved. I know his father pretty well. I know him. And I actually think Natalia at one point said on TV mm. that – this was Rob Goldstone maybe showing off, and I think Emmons mm. lawyer said Rob Goldstone was grandstanding. I've always thought if anyone was grandstanding, perhaps when that lawyer met with his dad and said for whatever the reasoning was, she wanted a meeting with the Trumps, I think his dad would have probably said, I think they're meeting with the Trumps. Well, he could, but he never has. Everything that's ever involved the Trumps has gone through me. Mm. So then he goes to the son, who's a pop star and like and has no interest in anything and has asked and given him whatever information he's given him, then he's gone, not a problem. Well, he's another one that's never asked them anything directly. Mm. The only person they've ever asked to ask them directly is me. So, of mm. course, it would come down the chain to me. So, I don't know. I, I, what the favor is, I've no idea. Maybe it's something personal. Maybe they're friends with a lawyer. Maybe there is something more sinister. I don't mm. know. I'm sure Mueller's people perhaps would have found that if there was. But the reality is... You know, what I do think is that ultimately it was a bait and switch. I think Natalia really believed she did have dirt, but the dirt was too generic. It was about these people like Browder making donations to the Democrats. There's nothing wrong with that. I actually remember sitting there when she said that, looking over at Don Jr. and thinking, didn't your father used to make donations to the Democrats? 
Like, why is this news? Well, obviously it wasn't news, because that's why Jared Kushner was saying, I've no idea what you're talking about. Like, how's this relevant? Just focus. So I think it was a bait and switch. I think once they heard this idea that she had some, I never really use the word dirt, but she mm. had this information about this damaging information. I think it was the bait. And the switch was that she represented trying to get Magnitsky sanctions lifted. And this was a way to get in the door because there's no question in my mind that she would never, ever have got this meeting if I'd gone to them and said they want to talk about mm. Magnitsky. Never. Because Don said, why are you talking to us? He's not in power. <laughs> and I honestly believe, and this is based on nothing, I think they also thought that Donald Duck had as much chance of being president as Donald Trump. I almost believe that Donald Trump thought Donald Duck had more chance of being president than Donald Trump. But nevertheless, I don't think we would have got a meeting with them about Magnitsky. But you add in that bait, which is, oh, and she's got information about donations, not specific. We didn't know who it was until in she walked. Well, it was generic. It'd be like me saying, oh, and you make donations. For them. Okay, well, that's fine. Like, what's wrong with that? It, to me, it was a bait and switch that went through three chains of command before the information came to me, who puffed it up as a publicist, all of which would have been fine, probably, if these people had been from Ireland and not Russia, mm -hmm. from Russia. And Russia became this hot-button topic. And as we know, from reports, Russia interfered in the election. So mm. everything connected with Russia becomes a microcosm of what, what's believed to be the case. Right. I mean, typically, so I think you make a great point that Trump... First of all, they didn't think they were going to win, which is part of why the criminal activity that took place on their part was, for, right. for them, it was just business as usual. Um, right. And then, I mean, I, we all saw the look on his face on election night. That's not a man who knew that he was, I, I don't know, he looked like he was about to have a you heart attack. You're <laughs> the first person that said that I've said the exact thing. He looked like he was about to collapse. Yeah. And I believe the only speech he had in his pocket was, it was rigged. She stole the election. I don't believe for one second he had a speech there at the time that yeah. said, I've won. So, but you know, it's, and also I will say here, be careful what you wish for, because mm. I also believe that if he could turn back time, I know people say, oh, he loves this. He had a pretty decent life. He was mm. doing what he wants. It's not easy, as you know, and you listen, to yeah. be the president of the United States. And, and I think this behavior, part of it is because the planning that maybe went into all of this wasn't based around someone that was going to win. So it's all like on a wing and a prayer and a this mm -hmm. and a that, and people who really couldn't organize a yard sale are now organizing, you know, foreign policy, domestic mm -hmm. policy. I, I think a lot of that plays into it, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's horrifying on some level. Yeah, I mean, there's there's 20 federal investigations, and, and, you know, I believe that eventually, I'm not sure what's going to happen with his presidency, but it is going to, uh, even worse for a man like him, the, uh, his empire is, in my opinion, is going to be destroyed eventually. It's just a, oh, it's a slow, yeah. Well, it's tainted anyway, just because. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, but anyway, but but so yes, I think that maybe they looked at, and you know, again, I'll say it again. I was naive, maybe perhaps even idiotic, to not realize there was something wrong. But I believe Don Jr. probably had as much, if not even less, sense in knowing that. But there was a chairman there of a campaign mm. who you would think mm. might have known better. And also who you would think, if he was sitting there, well, it gives a signal, perhaps, to me who checked in for it, therefore making it a public meeting, that there is nothing wrong with it. Or, 
someone would have said something. So, did they? Uh, you know. Yeah, oh, good. So. No, no. I was just going to say, did they know that you checked in during the meeting? No, I'm sure they did. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I have to say, nobody said it was. And again, it's not yeah. what a lot of people want to hear. It was so casual. I mean, it wasn't even like. I don't think it would have mattered if I'd said we checked in, is what I'm trying to say. And I say yeah. in my book, you know, these, these uh, Russian folks, they spent the time while we were waiting to meet them, taking these crazy sort of touristy selfies out of the amazing view from the waiting room for the concert. It was very kind of casual. Mm. And again, I didn't care because at that point, I would never have been in that meeting. The only thing I will say on that is, people have asked me, am I mad at Don Jr. for asking me stay in because it puts me in the meeting and the thing is it's the opposite if i'd never gone into the meeting as planned i would be one of the thousands if not more of people who believe something untoward went down in that meeting Mm -hmm. so the fact that i was there everything else could be true about who she was what she was who she knew who she didn't know that i don't know i do know what was said and what went on Mm because i was sat there if I hadn't been sat there, it would have also looked like complete BS to me as well. So I am glad of that, if nothing else. And I think that's how I was viewed when I gave my testimony. I was, um, I was never subpoenaed for anything. I was asked in a voluntary capacity, which I did all the things I was asked. And I think I was viewed to some extent as an impartial witness who had no, you know, I, I don't have any horse in the race on either side of this. So I think it was useful to them, me being there as well, but it was certainly useful to me to have been there. Rob, you said the uh, Russians were taking pictures there. I mean, was given what what I believe this meeting was about, was that did that come off yeah. as weird or just? Uh... What came off as weird was just um, they were like uh, sort of excited tourists, but it is an amazing huh. view of Central Park and of the Plaza Hotel and all that out the window. So maybe it's not that weird. But yes, it was a bit odd, and it was odd because it stuck in my mind. I can still almost see that all these years later. But that's why it was odd that this is, to me, it's some, you know, now I would say federal prosecutor or whatever. I don't imagine them as the sort of people that would take mm. selfies, but it, it, I get it. it. The views were amazing, so mm. I suppose. Why not? But yes, it was odd. It was an odd thing for them to do. Yeah, that just, I mean, it almost does sound like a bad spy move. Look, I, I think... Typically, the way Russia operates uh, is they, you know, as you as you almost titled your book, "Useful Idiot." They look for, right, you know, corruptible. And I think to me, that's what this meeting was about. It wasn't. Yes, the Magnitsky Act is important, but just when everyone took that meeting, I'm not talking about you, just in general. No, I understand. It it, it dirtied that campaign, and if right. if our country didn't have a, uh, a one party that's totally in the you know in bed with Trump, a normal candidate would have been in, impeached. So or Russia would have had dirt. I guess what I'm trying to say is I think just the minute everyone walked in that room, it was, that was the point uh, for them. It was bad news. It was it, yeah. Of, yeah. And you may be a hundred percent right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I go back to this thing, which is, but did they really need someone else? You know, it's been said <laughs> by many people, if Russia had wanted, I mean, couldn't they just have got to Manafort or got to somebody or got to whoever the heck? I don't know. It just brought in a whole new team of people where did they need yet another team of people? They seem to have, if some of these reports and things are correct, a lot of backdoor channels that they need Mm. this one. And again, I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. And I say it in there. I, I always believed, my heart of hearts believed that 
Mueller's team would, if nothing else, find nothing in either my email, its wording, or the reasoning I believe there was a meeting that would show that it was collusion on that side. But it's the willingness, obviously, to accept it on the other side. Now, you know, they could argue that was opposition research. They could argue that they were idiotic and didn't know. And they can argue many things. But I believe that Mueller's team would come to that conclusion, probably that, mm. if anything, they were perhaps a bit too stupid to really know what they were even doing. That mm. doesn't make it right. It just mm. means I, I don't disagree with that, um, having been in it. Rob, the... the my, the most important thing I've wanted to ask you is actually, you're the first person I've talked to. You've been inside the special counsel's office. I mean, can you tell, did you meet Robert Mueller? I didn't. You did. I didn't. And I'm laughing because some friends of mine after it said, oh my God, did Robert Mueller do your interview? And I said, here's the thing. <laughs> I'd heard that Robert Mueller didn't do any interviews. So if Robert Mueller had showed himself even to change a light bulb or adjust the thermostat, yeah. I would have probably just like thrown my hands up and gone, okay, whatever. I have no idea what I've done, but why are you here? <laughs> so no, I didn't see him. It was, Guilty. Uh, it was a couple of... <laughs> Sorry, just joking. A couple of, no, it was a couple of, uh, a couple of investigators. And, and you know what? They were extremely uh, logical, methodical, and made the process as easy and as painless as possible to go through. And I say that because, you know, testifying to some of these uh, Capitol Hill type of meetings, they're not easy to do. And when you have a partisan, as you can only imagine, a partisan environment, and you're trying to focus on fact, you know, the thing uh, that's hard for someone that's in the world of journalism or publicity is not to give your opinion. You have to deal only mm -hmm. in fact. But when you're being sort of assailed from all these different angles with people sort of trying to ask the same thing but with a slightly different agenda going into the Mueller environment was much easier and much more welcoming and they obviously had a, had a very much narrower field that they were interested in can but you tell terrifying oh, I may add. oh look I mean look I the the fact that you came out of that without being a uh, you know, no, no legal charges, nothing like that. I mean, right. you, these people, you don't lie to people like that. So you, I'm, I know you told them the truth because. Right. And, and I, I did a grand jury as well. Yeah. What I, what I was curious about, can you tell us who you talked to on the special counsel or what you talked about? I mean, do you remember their names or. You know, what? I don't actually, I, I don't, well, I couldn't remember. Uh, I'm trying to even think. You know, that's like the question people said to me, can you remember which building you were in? I don't know. And it's really oh, yeah. I, I was with legal people. They took me there. They did. I sat there. I didn't say no. And, and I don't know that they even introduced themselves and go, hi, I'm Joe Smith. I don't know right. if they did. But I, I didn't. The one thing people have asked me is they said, did you get interviewed by Jeannie Ree? And I think maybe because she's a woman, this sounds like, that, that her mm. name's more familiar. I didn't, but she, she was in my um, grand jury. Uh, mm. She was in. She wasn't the question, but she was there. Uh, outside of that, I couldn't tell you who interviewed me, no. Uh, but other than to say that, as I say, they were extremely logical, methodical. Were there any questions you remember that they asked you? Uh, anything that stuck they out? They asked me, the best way to sum it up is they asked me about my relationship with my client, my relationship with the Trumps, my client's relationship with the Trumps, my client's relationship with the Russian government and with President Putin, and anything I knew about Trump's relationship with that same set of people. And then they talked to me about some specific events, obviously, 
the email, the uh, meeting, and never forget, of course, I was with Trump in Moscow in 2013 for Mm. the Miss Universe contest. So we had that as well. And, um, you know, at one point, uh, early on in this, when the story broke, uh, I'm sure you've seen the the Woody Mm. Allen movie, Zelig, where his character morphed. Well, I would call myself Robert Zelig, because every time something would appear on the news and it would be like, well, now there's a steel dossier about Trump, and I'm like, wait, I was, I was actually there. Then it would be something else, and I'd be like, oh, wait, I was there. It all makes sense why I was yeah. there, because it's all part of the same thing. But I was very zealous. I kept popping up in these bizarre places, <laughs> which, again, only made sense with context. So, um, yeah. That's an excellent reference. Uh, yeah, Zelig, except maybe uh, popping up in places that you <laughs> you might not want to... Didn't want uh, to be. Yeah, exactly. Well, someone else described me as Chansey Gardner and being there. Uh, <laughs> you know, so a few... Actually, in Billboard magazine, I was called that. But then I've been called many things. You know, someone said I was like Alfred T. Doolittle. Hmm. <laughs> uh, like, I mean, but I've also been told I'm in the Israeli mafia. I'm in a group of Jews who come together to overthrow democracy. Hmm. I'm uh, Putin's puppet. I'm a KGB spy. I'm Hillary's spy. I work for Fusion. I was put there by Glenn. I mean, all of these things. Hmm. And I've also been told I am a, this is by the New York Times, a vodka-swilling, chocolate-inhaling playboy <laughs> who spends their nights in nightclubs. So all of it is as much intriguing to me and as not true as the next, but it's interesting. Yeah. There must be a little bit of irony, like you spent all that time as a publicist, and then, yeah. I I mean, I'm sure at times you had to spin things, and now to see your own life spun in a, with, that, with no control, that must be a little bit odd. It's odd, and I think the difference is, you know... Um, I think some of the media has behaved appallingly, not just to me, but in general. And I think part of it is that when I was a journalist, I, we didn't have a 24-hour news cycle. There wasn't social media. And I think the urge and the need for journalists and media outlets to be first rather than accurate has, um, I think it, it's left a very, a, a very bad picture of today's modern journalism. I think... You know, when you watch a lot of cable news, it isn't news. It's a form of entertainment. It's political, opinionated entertainment. And I think it's a shame uh, because I think news should be a way that people from, you know, all walks of life, all opinions, get the news and then they form their opinions. I don't want to hear talking heads opinions, all of which change every 10 minutes anyway, depending on what's going on. And I just think, you know, I've had, I'll give you one example, mm. but, um, yes. you know, there's, there's, a, there's an instance where the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee hearing that I did is public. So it's public testimony. People can go online and read what I'm about to say. Mm. And I was asked a question and they said, um, oh, you received a, an email from Anthony Scaramucci in his first day or two in the job. Can you explain that? And I said, sure, purportedly from Anthony Scaramucci. Mm. And they said, oh, can you explain? And I said, yes. When I received it, first of all, it was surprising that it looked like one of the first things he did when he became, I don't know what he was, was he the communications director, whatever he was in the White House, mm-hmm. um, was to email me, who he's never met or heard of. Uh, we may have heard of me. And um, when I looked at the email address, it was something really bizarre, like one, two, three, the mooch. It was really a ludicrous <laughs> thing to me. I merely sent it on to my legal phone says, look, it's obviously spam, whatever, and deleted it. Done. 
never heard of it again. So they said, thank you very much for clarifying that. That didn't stop a network news uh, program here in the States from having a headline that said, Goldstone's links with Anthony Scaramucci. And they wrote an entire piece about how Anthony Scaramucci chose me to email and did all this. And they said everything, quoting from it, except purportedly the spam and that it was deleted because I believed it to be nonsense, which it turned out to be. At the very end of this, it says, when contacted, Anthony Scaramucci had no comment because he believed he'd never met Rob. Well, of course he'd never met me because the story's not true. When I complained to people I know that worked for this outlet, they were outraged. They said, you have to call it. This is what they said. We would think about correcting it if I would sit down and do an interview with them. It's not about me sitting down and doing an interview. It's wrong. It's factually incorrect. It's public testimony. You've quoted half a paragraph without the answer. And that happened to me time and time again. And this is something which you're listening, this will bristle at your listeners, but just listen. <laughs> so when Donald Trump, who rarely speaks a word of truth, says fake news, he says something which he's hijacked that phrase, and it's a shame. But there is just a little bit and just enough in what he says that is true that I think makes people go, it's all fake. Hmm. And that's a shame. Yeah, well, that, that brings up the issue of having a... Uh you know, none of this would have been possible without an educated population in civics and government. And, and then right. a, something like that, um, you know, it would have been much harder. Um, I, I just have like, two, you've been very generous with your time, by the way. I want to thank you. Uh, I just have like two or three more questions and we're sure. on with the day. Um, in, in your time working with uh, the Aguilaros, I mean, before all this stuff happened with, with the sure. Trump Tower, did, did you ever see anything or suspicious, anything that... that a, a pattern of behavior, uh, illegal, anything? Uh, no, nothing. Uh, what I saw was um, a father who was quite introvert and quite, this is a Ragalan, and was quite proud of his sort of independent rise to success. You know, sometimes journalists would come in and I'd sit in and hear what they were saying through translators because he really didn't speak English very mm -hmm. much at all. And it was always this, you know, they would say things like, your friend, Mr. Putin, and he'd always stop them. I, I remember this over, and he'd say, I'm not friends with President Putin, you know. Mm. And that's worth noting also, you know, when Trump first met them and said, it's the richest family in Russia have come to meet me, mm. but they were the 54th richest business family in Russia, according to Forbes magazine here. So that obviously didn't stop Trump because he's, a bit like my email, he's never going to say, look, here's the 54th richest family that's come to say hello. But my point is that Aras Aguilarov was always fiercely like, I built this from nothing, I did this, there's no government support. Now, hmm. in later years, yes, he has done government projects. He helped with the soccer stadiums for the World Cup, but he wasn't my business. I didn't deal with him. I, deal, I dealt with the entertainer, the son, hmm. a hugely successful entertainer in Russia, who's toured internationally, who we had some success, uh, a single with Nile Rogers, which reached the top 10 of Billboard's dance songs here. And mm -hmm. we did all kinds of, with him. That was my concern. I never, ever heard Emin talk politics or really say anything mm -hmm. where I went, ooh. What I did, if I saw bizarre behavior, yes, it's that he liked to play video games and go on like stupid scooters and mad <laughs> dangerous cars. That I saw, but not the other side. I, I, mm -hmm. And that's interesting because at the time I met him, he was still married to, although separated from 
his wife, who was the daughter of the president of Azerbaijan. And so it's not like he didn't know about politics, but maybe because of that, he never sp- I never heard politics be of mm. interest to him or anything like that. But I will say that both Emin, Iran, and everybody I would meet in Russia when I would visit there were huge Trump supporters, even before mm. he ran for anything. They loved all things Trump. He had a brand that they liked. He had a bravado mm. that they liked. So it's not a surprise to me that Russia would support him. How did, how did your working relationship with uh, Emin end? I, I'm curious. So in, now I'm not good with these dates, and especially after we talk for an hour, but I think mm. in 2016, in the October, I said to him, for a while I've been talking about taking a gap year and writing a book called Never Mind the Gap. So my original book was going to be called Never Mind the Gap, about whether someone in their 50s could do a kind of <laughs> gap year and, go, and what that meant, because um, I heard a phrase called a year on where you take a year off, not to do nothing, but to do everything you've ever wanted to do. And it just intrigued me. So mm. I told them in the year before, he said, I, I'd rather you didn't. We had stuff to do. I, I got a PBS special for him that year in 2016. And once it was done, we filmed it in St. Petersburg with David Foster. It was incredible, 50,000 mm. people, all of that. I said, I'm taking the year off. I'm leaving you at the end of the year. So what happened was he did this kind of like, Okay, but you'll be back. And I said, of course I'll be back, but I'm taking the year off. So at the end of December, uh, I went to his birthday, December 12th. He always has a concert. And at the end of it, that was kind of like, I'll see you in a year. And I actually saw him the following February in London. Hmm. And uh, I wasn't working for him. He took a selfie and he said, oh, look what I just posted. You know, we're back in business. You know, me and my manager. I said, no, you have to delete it because I'm still going on my gap year. I know it's very funny to you, but I want to do it. So that's what happened. I started on my gap year, as people know who've read the book or heard me Mm. speak, and I just got to Athens. I was heading out to Asia when I got that call from uh, Rod Helderman at the Washington Post with those famous words, did you set up a meeting, blah, blah, whatever she said. And I went, yes. And she was taken aback. I said, yes, why? She goes, have you read the New York Times? I said, no, I was on a boat for a week. Why? I would suggest you read the New York Times. <laughs> so that's how, yeah, so that's how it ended. And there was nothing bad about the ending. I would probably have gone back to him after that year, that gap year. But, mm. you know, things change. And once that broke, well, then that's not an option. So. Fair enough. Um, and I just have two more questions. Again, I want to thank you. I know what it's like to talk for, it takes a lot out of me. So I know you're a busy guy. And again, I just want to no, thank no. you for. It's uh, no. I think it's important. Things like this are important because it helps add some context. And again, I don't necessarily expect that people who are listening go, oh, okay, I've heard that now from Rob Goldson. I'll change. I'm not asking you to change your views on the mm. on Russia gates and such. I'm just asking people to be a bit more informed so that when mm. they form opinions, they have facts. That's all. Exactly. Um, I did want to ask you, um, you know, BuzzFeed had an article. It was sort of uh, about what they described as suspicious money transactions. I know you right. have an opinion on it. Can you, uh, in your during your gap year involving you and your business partner, can you tell us yeah. if, what's the, the deal? Oh, I have great opinion on that one. Oh, I'm so happy for that. Sure. They are another example to me of the lowest form of journalism. So hmm. well, I was on a gap year, so obviously I wasn't living in America. I ended up basing myself out of Asia uh, for, I think it was just under six months, maybe five months. And hmm. Bangkok was a home base, but I was in Australia and different parts. Right, I was writing my book. And 
BuzzFeed wrote an article um, about suspicious activities and, and transactions. Mainly, I have to say, it was the Aguilaros and what they were mm-hmm. doing. But then in that article, they obviously couldn't resist saying, and there were these weird suspicious uh, withdrawals, ATM withdrawals by Rob Goldson. But in Bangkok, why would he be withdrawing? I think it was either 6000 or $8,000 across a four or five month period in Bangkok. Well, because I lived there. Like, how would they like me to live on beans or shells? And so the reality is, I my biggest concern wasn't necessarily they didn't explain it. It mm. was how would they get this information? Because every legal person I spoke to said, that's private banking information. Mm. What I would learn is that um, at least one and possibly two people from the Department of Treasury have been indicted or awaiting indictment mm. for having leaked private banking information to BuzzFeed and others on anyone that was connected in any way to Russia because of their hatred for Trump or whatever it was. I mean, it's private banking information. Mm. Do people really need to know that I pulled <laughs> out money here? And they talked about my mortgage. and so, I mean, it's just, why would they think I was, they knew I was on a gap year in Asia. How, why wouldn't I pull out money there? It's not suspicious. It's sort of obvious. Well, I, you know, I'm curious, like, I'm not, by, by trade, I'm not a journalist. I'm really an entertainer. Right. Who, sorry, but I'm, they did describe 40 or 50, uh, something like that. Let's say it was 30, 40 of seven in or $8,000. Six, dollars. Months. six no, no, months, fair. $8,000 in total. Uh, total. It was the total. It wasn't seven or eight. Yes, if it was seven oh, or eight. Tra- okay. Yes, it was the total, total. amount was seven or 8000 across the six months. Well, all oh. I'm saying is, yes, mm. it was a total number for me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think that is a lot across. And I say I wasn't there because it's about five, but I don't think that is a lot. And I think it's obvious if you're living there and, and you know, but they knew I was living there. It's just another attempt to tell half a story. Because if you write a total ATM withdrawals of whatever it was, seven or eight thousand dollars mm. across five months whilst living in, well, no one would think that was strange. But if you write it with only some of the information, it sounds strange. Yeah, and I, as you said, uh, no, I, I appreciate the clarification. I must have, uh, I've been, yeah, I've had my head in too many. Total number, yeah. Okay, got it. Um, well, I just, uh, you know, it's funny. I had that, I was reading that right before we talked, but okay, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm, all I say, it's a very valid question because it's mm-hmm. out there and it's another thing that comes up, but it's the context of it. Again, when, you know, I think I was sitting with, I don't know if it was, the Times, the Journal, the Washington, I was with somebody when that story broke. And they said, oh, have you seen this? And when I said to them, well, that's where I was living, they go, no, no, we know you were living there. Why is it a story? I said, because it's part of a bigger story, obviously, on the Aguilaris. But they also have to look at that. You know, they're people who, you know, Emmons' mom lives in America. His sister lives here. So if they moved money here and did it, well, I don't know. Maybe that was to do with mortgages. and I'm just saying... I don't need to defend the Aguilar if they can do what they want. But the point is, just be accurate. And I hate this idea that they can fix things after, they can make things right, post-story. Why not get it right? Because for the people who you write this about, it really does have an impact. I mean, I had my bank accounts closed by a bank after that story appeared that just didn't want to do business with me. I mean, that's it. You can't appeal. You can't do anything. Banks have the right to say, we don't want to do business with you. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it's an obvious, I was living there. 
$6,000 across five months is not exactly <laughs> an inordinate amount of money. You know, you know, it's funny, Rob. I found the article and you're right. I totally read that wrong. I <laughs> yeah, but I'm just saying, what is outrageous is that somebody would have leaked it because of a hatred yeah. for the Trump administration. I mean, yeah. you know, but anyway, that's all I'm saying. No, no, I look. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, actually, I appreciate that. That's good because maybe other people think so. No, I, I, I read that wrong. That, that was That's funny because... Oh, well, I'm gonna. I'm always learning too. I'm gonna remember that. Get or, anyway. Or, um, but no, and and I appreciate all your questions. You know, because again, not everyone has to have the same views. Not everyone has the same opinions. But unless I'm severely mistaken, one of the things that makes us a great sort of democracy and human race is the ability to have heated debates and arguments and thoughts and and to draw opinions, not just to behave like. Savages, basically, that just go for the uh, lowest common denominator and just scream uh, at each other all the time. I have a one word, like last question, but I think you'll like it. Who, Rob, who do you want to play you in the movie about all this? Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. So I ran into Tom Arnold at Sirius Radio about a year ago, and he said to me, oh, my God, I, I, would you sign my book? And I said, excuse me? And he goes, I'm a fan. And I said, don't be ridiculous. And he goes, do you know who I am? I said, of course I know who you are, but you can't possibly know who I am. And he goes, I should play you in the movie. Um, I think Patton Oswalt looks a bit like me, but because <laughs> I'm English, I don't know, James Corden would be good, but if I had to pick a star to do it, so it, by the way, this is just all hypothetical, obviously. Yeah. Um, Jonah Hill, because one minute he's fat, one minute he's thin, I've done all that, <laughs> then he's a bit fatter, then he's a bit thinner, and so um, I think that's uh, Jonah Hill, let's go for him. Rob Goldstone, uh, the book is called Pop Stars, Pageants, and Presidents. Again, I really... Uh, it's on Amazon or everywhere, I assume. Uh, yeah. Thanks, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate all that. I appreciate you know your questions and and and, the, and I hope that people listening to this will just think of, not just about me, but I try to do this as well. Before we hit that Twitter and say what are often quite horrible things about this, just think about context. Just give it a second before you hit send. That's all I say. Yeah, I bet you don't use email too much anymore. That's very funny, actually. I was at the, um, I, again, now, and then I will say, I got invited to the yeah. uh, White House Correspondents Association dinner in Washington a couple of weeks ago by USA Today. And I was speaking to something and said, you can give me a call. And I said, oh, I'll send you an email. And I saw a look of horror on their face. And I said, I'll just call you. It's easier. Thank you so much for talking to us. Pleasure. Thank you all so right. much. And hey. uh, all the best. Thank you. Uh, bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye.